see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to Discovery, the national science radio show that cooks up brain food for the clever country. I'm Adam Mark. On this edition, we'll be hearing about repressed memories and where they are hidden, and a brief history of the great French scientist Louis Pasteur. But first, here's Nick Perkins talking with one of Australia's leading scientific minds and opera aficionados, Professor Jack Carmody, about great Aussie scientists of all time. He's Professor of Physiology and Pharmacology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. His major research interest has been concerned with understanding the body's own mechanisms of analgesia to try and alleviate various painful conditions in humans. He also has a long-standing interest in the history and philosophy of science and recently published an invited article in Nature magazine on the history of Australian science. He's also the weekly opera critic for the Sun Herald. Professor Carmody, Australia has certainly had its fair share of science greats. Who were, in your opinion, some of the most significant great Aussie scientists and perhaps some of your own personal favourites? Well, they're not necessarily the same thing, are they, Nick? Um, obviously, um, some of the great, uh, the great scientists of the last century, the people who uh, first started the studies of Australian flora and fauna, and I suppose the first great scientist to visit Australia was Sir Joseph Banks as a young man coming here on uh, Cook's voyage. And uh, that very fact alone should remind us that Australia was established as the result of a voyage which had a very important scientific pur purpose, watching the transit of Venus in the Pacific and to see if they could find the Great South Land and learn something about uh, its natural history. Um, Banks then became secretary of the Royal Society in London for a very long period of time, was an immensely important and powerful person. Probably the next greatest scientist to visit Australia was T.H. Huxley, who later became known as Darwin's Bulldog and was terribly important in promulgating the idea of Darwin's uh, evolutionary theories. But of course there were important um, scientists resident in Australia at the time. Uh, Macaulay, for example, after whom the... Macaulay, rather, after whom the Macaulay Museum at Sydney University was named, was a very, very distinguished naturalist. And people like von Müller and um, others who were interested in in early agricultural research and the development of rust-resistant wheats. And that, that uh, mention of agriculture reminds us that uh, it's been in agriculture and land use that the, the support of science has been most consistent in Australia for obvious economic reasons. Otherwise, um, notwithstanding our historical beginnings with science, one might sometimes be pardoned for thinking that uh, the Australian community doesn't regard science very highly at all. The, the record is very patchy. You asked me about some of my um, favourite scientists or the scientists whom I regard most highly were, of course, Banks, obviously, um, of enormous importance for all sorts of reasons. And the, the material that came back from that early expedition, um, platypuses and, and so on, um, immensely important um, as part of the scientific background against which Darwin was able to formulate his theories. Um, in more recent times, uh, scientists whom I've known and been impressed by, people like Howard Florey, 
who was professor of pathology at Oxford, originally from, from uh, Adelaide, very important in the foundation of the Australian National University. And that means very important in the revitalization of science, medical scientific research in Australia. Um, Pansy Wright, Roy Wright um, in Melbourne, who's professor of physiology there, uh, and, and a colourful character if ever there was one, uh, but enormously important in, in um, in the development of uh, Melbourne, really, as a, as a powerhouse of medical research. And the other one would have to be, um, well, as soon as you mention Melbourne, you have to think of Burnett, although I, uh, I did hear him give a lecture once, and it was, it was very impressive, but the, the one whom, uh, whom I'd have to mention, who had the greatest influence in my own area, of course, was Sir John Eccles, um, great Australian neurophysiologist and Nobel Prize winner, and his influence endures today, the strength of neuroscience in Australia. I think if one can fairly ascribe anything to one man, then uh, Jack Eccles' influence has to be the, the major reason why neuroscience is so significant and so strong in Australia. Australia is, you know, a very geographically isolated continent as well, and and so I guess the phenomenon of brain drain, where our young scientists often go abroad to try and, um, you know, make a name for themselves, isn't so surprising. But uh, is there a long history of this problem, and, and do you think it still exists? Well, there is, there is indeed. Um, I mentioned uh, T. H. Huxley a little while ago. Huxley was in Sydney. Uh, uh, in Sydney, he wrote the work, the paper, which got him a fellowship of the Royal Society of London when he was in his mid-twenties, one of the most amazing um, zoologists, natural scientists to work in Australia. He married a Sydney woman, as a matter of fact, uh, and he was very anxious, since he was here at the time that the foundations of the University of Sydney were underway, very anxious to get the chair of natural science or uh, natural philosophy, um, zoology in other words, or biology, which the select committee of the parliament recommended should be one of the foundation chairs of the University of Sydney. For reasons which are simply not explained in the minutes of the early meetings of the Senate of the University of Sydney, they abandoned that idea. They didn't create that chair. And so Australia lost Huxley, lost the greatest scientist uh, greatest biological scientist of the day without any question or shadow of doubt. Science more generally might have been a beneficiary in that uh, if he'd stayed in Australia he wouldn't have been in, on hand in London um, or in Oxford to, uh, to debate with um, Sophie Sam, Bishop Wilberforce and to promote uh, Darwin's theories. So it's a kind of swings and roundabout maybe but there was an early example of the great loss to Australian science and there have been many other examples of that. Um, we always had the view that, not just for science, but for other education as well, people would go back home, as they used to call it, to England. And I think it was only something like the late 1940s that the first Australian PhD was awarded. So that was a hundred years or so after the universities of Sydney and Melbourne were founded that they actually awarded their first doctorates. So the, the, the flip side of that coin has to be that everybody went overseas somewhere sometimes to Germany. There, there are clear examples of uh, Australian biologists and pharmacologists who worked in Germany, but the general um, practice was you could do your undergraduate work here, but you had to go overseas to, to do your postgraduate work. That represented a kind of cultural cringe in a way, uh, the belief that academic life was much stronger in, in Europe, particularly in, uh, in Britain, uh, than it was in Australia, and perhaps you'd have to say um, that many people thought that it could be 
until until um, uh, the the beginning of our first PhDs. I think that has something says something about the effect of World War Two on Australia and the discovery not only politically that we can no longer rely on on Britain, um, but also the opening up of the worldview to involve the United States and therefore people started to go to the United States much more at that point and of course the whole uh, expansion of the uh, understanding of the significance of science which came about with World War II and radar and, and, the, and the nuclear bomb and so on. It was a very different Australia after World War II and that is reflected in the foundation of new universities like the University of New South Wales and of course um, the development of um, postgraduate education research in Australia. Professor Carmody, thanks very much for talking to us today on Discovery. Pleasure, Nick. That was Nick Perkins talking to a great Aussie scientist, Jack Carmody. You're listening to Discovery. Hello, this is David Bellamy. Honestly, it is. My favourite animal is sea otter. And my favourite community science show, what else but Discovery? Next, Gina Satori dips her toe into the murky waters of the debate about repressed memories and hope it doesn't get bitten off at the neck. A recent report in the journal Nature has suggested that we can block out unpleasant memories simply by trying very hard not to think about them. Michael Anderson and Colin Green from the University of Oregon believe that their research may help to explain why people suffer some memory loss after traumatic events. Students in their research were asked to remember slightly unpleasant pairs of words such as ordeal cockroach well enough that when shown the first of a pair they could reliably come up with the second. Then they were split into two. One group was asked to practice the pairings, the other actively to try to forget them. A short time later, the second group found the pairings much harder to remember, even when offered money if they got them right, which is quite an, an inducement for a student. The researchers interpret this as active suppression rather than just passive forgetting and say it is caused by the effort not to think about the words. Anderson and Green draw two implications from their research. Firstly, they think it may partially explain why children abused by someone they know are more likely to report having forgotten it than those abused by a stranger. Seeing the abuser repeatedly means they spend more time forcing down the memories, which eventually makes them forget. I suppose the suggestion is that without the constant reminders and efforts to push them down, the memory of the abuse gradually fades enough to be dealt with, rather than having to be completely cut from conscious experience. Secondly, a failure of the suppression may explain why some people suffer post-traumatic stress disorder. Their normal adaptive reaction, which is to inhibit the memories, somehow gets switched off. Not only do they not forget the trauma, but they're forced constantly to relive it in nightmares, intrusive memories and anxiety. However, the researchers were only looking at very short timescales and an academic, not very traumatic, not very realistic task. Also, they didn't have much to say about spontaneous remembering of the forgotten material. This is where much of the current controversy about recovered memories of childhood abuse lies. As Chris Bruin of University College London points out, no one really knows if recovered memories are real or not. Maybe some are and some aren't, 
and we just don't know which are which. What we do know is that memory is complicated. It's very easy to contaminate a memory with a suggestion or with later information or even a prior prejudice. For example, an American study back in the 70s showed white participants a drawing of a confrontation between two men on a train. One man was black and the other white and one of the men was holding a knife. Who did the participants later remember as holding the knife? The black man. But who had actually been holding it? The white man. There was no suggestion that the participants were deliberately lying about what they saw. They merely had a very strong memory of something that was incorrect. You can of course do this even more easily the other way around. A pure memory is easily altered by later information. Unfortunately, while juries are sequestered during trials, even though recent studies suggest that they are well able to discriminate what they hear from what gets reported, witnesses are rather more vulnerable. For example, if shown suspects in a careless or misleading way, people can misidentify an innocent bystander as the perpetrator of a crime. For example, you notice someone in a hotel corridor. The next day, you witness a different adult leading a child out of the hotel and, it turns out later, abducting them. Later still, you're shown a picture of the first person in a way that makes you think police suspect them of the crime. It's perfectly possible, in fact it's happened, to take your first memory and, with the unconscious help of sloppy procedure, combine it with your second so that you genuinely identify someone you saw the day before as the criminal. Both memories are correct, you've just lost track of which bit goes with which. This is called a failure of source monitoring and it happens all the time, though generally less exotically. It might be remembering a joke but not who you've told it to, so you end up telling it to the person who originally told you, which is most embarrassing. My particular bugbear is remembering that I've locked the door being able to actually see myself doing it but not being able to tie down the source of the memory. Was it half an hour ago when I left home or when I left home yesterday but not today? The memories don't even have to be the same type. In fact it often happens that bits of an actual event get mixed up indistinguishably with a written account. Unfortunately once a memory has been contaminated it becomes as real as the original. It's not a false memory as such, it's a real memory of a false event. Basically, we just don't know how memory works. We do know what is almost certainly not true. Memories are not passively laid down and filed away, like tracks on a mini-disc, for example. Memories are interpreted, reconsidered, they fade and revive, they might be actively suppressed, and they could spontaneously, with the right cue, reappear. In a future edition of Discovery, Gina Satori will investigate more about what we know about memory and what can go wrong with it. You're listening to Community Radio's national science show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio satellite, ComradeSat. Still to come, Louis Pasteur's legacy to the world. I'm a mighty, windy boy. 
Louis Pasteur has been called the father of microbiology, but his legacy is much larger than most people realise. Here's Lachlan Watmore with a brief biography of one of France's greatest scientists, the man who, among other things, made the act of eating cornflakes a safe and pleasurable activity. If anybody could be called a giant of 19th century science, it would be Louis Pasteur. Not only did he push microbiology into the modern age, he also made groundbreaking discoveries in chemistry and brought about a small revolution in education and the scientific method itself. However, it was the infant discipline of microbiology that he made the contributions by which we remember him. Louis Pasteur, as the name suggests, was a Frenchman. He was born in the town of Doule in eastern France into a family of tanners. He started getting good results in school from the beginning and had earned his PhD in physical sciences at the relatively young age of 25. The very next year, he announced the findings of his first discovery to the Paris Academy of Sciences, a finding for which he is not usually remembered but easily counts as one of his most groundbreaking. He reported to the Academy that two acids, tartaric acid and racemic acid, had identical chemical constituents and compositions but behaved in radically different ways. One of them, when dried into salt crystals, rotated plain polarised light to the left and the other acid, in the same state, rotated it to the right. Furthermore, one could be used as food by microorganisms while the other was left alone. And yet, the chemical formulae of the compounds remained identical to each other. Pasteur, in a brilliant mental leap, realised that the shape, not just the composition of the two molecules, was important, and that while the type of atoms and their ratios to each other might stay the same, the arrangement of these atoms in three-dimensional space must be different, hence the differences in physical properties. In doing so, he invented stereochemistry, which is the study of the three-dimensional properties of chemical compounds. However, given that we all open cartons of milk with the word pasteurised written on them, it is for microbiology that Pasteur is best remembered. In 1854, he was made dean of a new science faculty at the University of Lille, where he received a request to investigate the process of fermentation. He soon discovered that fermentation was caused by microorganisms such as yeast, and fermenting media such as grain or potato do not ferment all by themselves. He demonstrated this finding by injecting milk with various microbes, which made it go sour. In those days, some people still believed in spontaneous generation, which is the belief that life can simply create itself in, say, a bottle of milk, where there was none before, a small genesis. These days, such a concept seems laughable, but given that before Pasteur there was no satisfactory explanation as to why lactic or alcoholic fermentation occurred, belief in spontaneous generation is quite understandable. After all, milk goes off, doesn't it? And I didn't see anybody put something in the bottle. Pasteur, in a series of simple experiments, proved that it was the exposure of these substances to air and the microorganisms floating in it that caused them to putrefy. Once he'd done this, he put his newfound theory to work in the preservation of wine and vinegar, which were both important to France's economy. It was at this stage that he invented pasteurisation, the heating of wine, vinegar, milk and other perishable liquids to kill harmful microbes and enable them to have longer shelf lives. The British were particularly grateful for his discoveries because now they could transport good English beer all the way to India without fear, fear of its deterioration. 
From fermentation, Pasteur then turned his attention to disease. He single-handedly saved the French silk industry from ruin by identifying two sources of pathology in silkworms and formulating procedures to prevent further contagion. From there, he developed an interest in vaccination, influenced by the Englishman Edward Jenner, who had used cowpox to inoculate against smallpox. The scientific name for cowpox is vaccinia, hence the word vaccine. Through his heating methods, Pasteur was able to produce a weakened or attenuated culture of various pathogens, not virulent enough to cause disease, but still recognisable to the immune system and therefore the cause of an immune response. His first success was the inoculation of a herd of sheep against anthrax, which was followed by the protection of chooks from chicken cholera. The incredible thing is that in those days, people knew almost nothing about immunity. Pasteur had observed that chooks who had survived chicken cholera never got it again, and in another great mental leap, reasoned that such an immunity was a result of exposure to the pathogen, not an innate quality. This was truly inspired independent thinking, particularly given that Darwin's evolutionary theory had just become public, and scientists everywhere were talking in terms of innate characteristics and the death-driven mechanism called natural selection. In 1885, Pasteur, using his new techniques, cured a young boy of rabies. After working on dried tissue samples from rabid dogs, he developed a vaccine for the disease using attenuated virus particles. Three years later, the Pasteur Institute was founded, with its namesake naturally at its head. By this stage, glory and honours had been heaped on the man from far and wide, and Pasteur didn't shrink from it, knowing full well his national worth, as well as his achievements. However, Ill health had dogged him for many years and he died in 1895 at the age of 73. Pasteur didn't just excel in science. He made several innovations in education. While at Lille, he instituted evening classes for the industrial workers of the town and made sure his science students got out into the fields and factories and got their hands dirty in the pursuit of knowledge. He favoured the field over the laboratory and demonstrated time and again the close relationship between theory and practice. So next time you crack a carton of milk, remember the late, great, big Louis Pasteur, a man who saved lives, opened minds and exemplified la grandeur de la France. Now to take us out, some music written by German. That was Lachlan Watmore, ably assisted by Ludwig von Beethoven, on the life of Louis Pasteur. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discovery at zip.com.au. That's discovery at zip.com.au. Contributing to the program were Nick Perkins, Gina Satori and Lachlan Watmore. Discovery has been produced by Melissa Hulbert in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support from Lachlan Watmore. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Adam Mark. Join us for more science next week on Discovery. <laughs>